You are listening to the REI Mastermind Podcast. Join JD as he chats with industry-leading real estate experts and professionals. We learn from their experience and uncover the strategies to their success that we can implement into our own businesses and we can drive immediate results today. They share their experience and wisdom as we build the foundation to our own success. This is the REI Mastermind Network. Well, we have Big Mike on the show, and I'm going to have Big Mike tell us his last name because I've slaughtered it a couple times here now. But we want you to direct you to his website, bigmikefund.com. And by the name of this podcast or his website, you can probably already tell what we're going to be talking about. And that's going to be uh, investing in funds and maybe even uh, some insider information there. But Big Mike, I really appreciate your time. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast. It's Big Mike Fund um, on your favorite podcasting app. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jack, very much. I'm humbled and honored to be a guest on your show. Uh, it's Mike Zlotnik, or people call me Big Mike, maybe because I'm 6'4", a bit on a heavy side. <laughs> so, so, Yeah, we got a, we got about a foot disparency between um, our heights. Um, just uh, every, I'm, I'm, I'm short. And and everybody's tall compared to me. So, oh no worries. Sometimes it's a big disadvantage. So it really being tall is not always a big advantage. So yeah, but it is. Um, yeah, the name stuck and the the podcast stuck because of the um, kind of the nickname, and I couldn't come up with a more creative name. So it was Big Mike Fun because I'm a fund manager. So that's the history of of the name. So you know, uh, you, you bring up the fund. Let's let's jump right in. You know, I I, I think a lot of people. Uh, you know, are new to real estate investing. I mentioned a lot of people that listen to our show is are likely newer to real estate investing. So, can you just kind of give a little background exactly what is a is a fund, a real estate investing fund, and how you got into this? Sure. So, real estate fund, and I'm going to use a few, hopefully not too fancy words, but it's a diversified investment vehicle. At least our funds are broadly they were diversified. It's basically an entity, an LLC, way to think mm -hmm. about it. The fund has um, an offering document, which is known as the PPM, Private Placement Memorandum. That's the formal offering document. But mechanically, what is a fund? A fund is, a, um, is an investment vehicle where you have many investors that come in and they pull the capital together. Not any different as a mutual fund on Wall Street. Many investors, they buy the units of the fund or shares, and they become owners of the fund. And then the fund makes multiple investments. And our fund, uh, or our family of funds, each fund is focused on real estate only. So we take the investor's money, uh, and we invest into multiple projects. So a growth fund, we have a Tempo Growth Fund that invests into growth uh, projects, and it's got a growth mandate. You have Tempo Opportunity Fund, which is a growth and income fund. It invests into growth and income projects. But the fund by itself is simply a vehicle where you have many investors and many investments, and um, uh, and it works as an intermediary to basically raise the capital, manage the capital, put the money to work, generate return, and then distributes the return to investors. That's kind of the, how a real estate fund works. Sure. So how did you get involved in this? Sure. So um, I, I had a previous day, career in uh, technology. I had almost 15-year uh, career as a technology executive, and I enjoyed that. But my passion has always been real estate. So in 2000, I started investing in real estate passively, and I loved 
the benefits of real estate investing. Uh, and in 2009, I was a little bit burnt out in a key world, had a very successful career, but I was tired and I loved real estate and I had an opportunity to basically run a fund. So a friend of mine, uh, many years started the fund. He just said, won't you come and run the fund? And I started running a real estate fund in 2009 and uh, never looked back. It's been a journey. It's been a lot more fun, a lot more fun for me. It's kind of my, my, my genius zone, the, 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 the golden middle where um, uh, I'm very passionate about it. I'm good at this. And um, so that, that's, that's kind of how it started. In 2009, I started running the first fund by virtue of my good friend starting the fund and then never running it and asking me to step in and run the fund. And then since then, I launched a number of other funds with, the, with my team. So Sure. So you probably have seen quite a bit. I mean, if you started investing in 2000 and then started to do the fund in 2009, you know, we had that downturn, the financial downturn in 2007, 2008. Um, what kind of similarities are you, do you remember from then that you might be seeing now with the whole upturn with COVID? So um, for, for the record, I, I never seen a downturn from the point of view that I've been investing in New York City since 2000. So New York City didn't see much of anything in 2008 and nine, We didn't see what happened in the Southern California or Southern Florida, none, none of the yo-yo thing. So uh, uh, as a fund manager, when I started 2009, that was the bottom of the uh, kind of, of the, of the, it was past the crisis and it was a great opportunity to, came in, to come in. So um, I, I did not experience a terrible collapse of, that happened in you know, seven, eight, nine. Uh, so just for the record, <laughs> I never seen that that you know major drop. It's always been a, sure. a, a pretty pretty positive journey. But I've learned a lot of lessons by seeing and, and learning from other folks who were over leveraged, over stretched, over aggressive. So I've learned the lessons without seeing a big hit myself into what you know I've invested in. Mm -hmm. So you know one of the things that I thought was interesting, you know, based on you know they send over the interview sheet and to kind of introduce you is that uh, they definitely pointed out regarding some opportunities that you've been exploring regarding converting certain certain properties to, uh, in fact, one of them says, conversion of hotels to affordable multifamilies. Are you experiencing that in your, in your neck of the woods? Sure. And, and uh, Jack, thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, it's been uh, something that... Um, uh, arrived sort of uh, by virtue of the pandemic, but the challenges existed pre-pandemic. The pandemic sort of accelerated some of the difficulties hotels uh, and offices have experienced, and uh, they've become uh, dysfunctional, and the highest and best use is no longer um, hotel but or an office. And uh, instead, the, uh, the opportunity to convert these properties into uh, affordable multifamily projects have been uh, the kind of the, the recent story and the recent journey. And we, we have at this point um, eight investments in the, actually more, nine investments in the sector. And um, uh, we're loving it. it it's, it's been a great journey. Uh, we did one hotel to multifamily conversion pre-COVID, investing in um, 2019. It just exited, just sold in February of this year, uh, short 21 months. And effectively in that one investment, we uh, doubled, uh, almost doubled in a quarter money, but 2.2 2, 2 return 
to, to make it very simple, we wrote $250,000 check and we got back 556000 in hmm. 29 months. That was, if you compute the rate of return on that, that's a 73%. So we love that from economic economic perspective, that looked like a great opportunity. So we, we've been accelerating our investments in the, and we love that thesis. So we start acquiring during COVID a um, number of these projects and uh, they they are, you know, knock on the wood, they're, they're running really, really well. Uh, it, it has a great do good part of the strategy because uh, do we need more hotels? Do we need more office space today? We need more affordable housing. That whole strategy seems to be uh, dominating uh, the headlines. And um, I'll give you some examples. We've invested into projects, a uh, uh, number of conversions, or we call them extended stake hotels. So residents in as an example. Mm-hmm. We have one in South Bend, Indiana, one in Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina. These projects, um, they look like mini apartments, uh, and the conversion process is fairly easy. And we love that that whole um, uh, strategy and the thesis and the numbers to work better. The economics, the reason economics work is because conversion is fairly lightweight. You're leveraging existing property versus reconstruction. So you're building mm-hmm. apartment complex without building it. You're just converting. And then the cap rates, again, if your audience is fairly new, the cap rates is just a fancy term how in commercial real estate, they quantify uh, uh, return on investment. The lower the cap rate, the higher the price. So the cap rates in residential is a whole lot lower than uh, than uh, hospitality. So as a result, you're repositioning the assets where the same level of income trades at a much higher price. So economic thesis is there. You're building well below reconstruction uh, cost. You're providing affordable housing, which is really hard to find. Nobody wants to build affordable housing now because because if you could spend the dollars building, you could build more expensive stuff. So um, uh, that thesis worked. We also invested in some office conversions to multifamily uh, as office space became dysfunctional. It's not clear how many years will it take for it, for uh, the business to come back. So those projects continue. We also, there's basically two primary flavors of the ice cream. The one flavor is the extended stake hotels, like residents in. You can imagine mm-hmm. they look like mini apartments. Right. The secondary flavor of ice cream, I call them ramadas, like ramada inns. So you've mm-hmm. seen them. They're hotels that look like motels. And really, the rooms are simple. You're basically not entering them from inside of a hotel. You're entering from external kind of um, uh from external points of entry, like like a, typically for a motel, and they're studios, but they work uh, in an environment where uh, there are uh, colleges where students want to live off campus, and they have an easy commute to the to the campus. They also work in workforce housing, kind of where um, people need a, their, their own place to crash versus getting a one or two bedroom with a roommate. You're doing it at a pretty affordable cost basis and you have the privacy. So mm-hmm. the concept seems to be working. Yes, it's small space, but it's your own space. Right. So what do, what kind of things do you have to do to these apartments to uh, convert them? So besides so say zoning and entitlements, getting the permission from the city to do it, sometimes that permission is already built into the, uh, uh, into the zoning on that property. But if it's not built in, it has to be uh, requested and approved. Uh, beyond that, typically you're innovating um, uh, external uh, elements of the building, the roofs, the siding, making them fresher. Obviously, some level of common areas changing from hotel meeting rooms maybe into some um, 
uh, common areas, some spaces where people can go outside of their room and enjoy uh, some kind of work environment. Uh, plus, you're renovating uh, rooms themselves. Uh, pretty much, you have to install kitchenettes. If it's an extended stay hotel, they may have kitchenettes already there. If it's like a Ramada flavor, you have to install small kitchenettes so there is a, a way to cook in, in the apartment. Uh, you may have some, some improvements to the common areas, as I mentioned. Uh, some of the hotel amenities uh, typically, you know, could be a pool, could be some refresher on that. In general, these projects, if they piggyback on a, on a you know, not completely run down hotel, they can leverage existing structure and it, it's incremental um, improvements. Instead of hotel lobby, you're, you're trying to create uh, more of a common area and, 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 and enable residents to have, because you have a small room, you need to have mm -hmm. some shared ability to have a mini library or whatever you call it, or, or, or an internet room, uh, but you know, so, so something like that. Uh, that's what happens with these with these properties. Uh, obviously, again, age of the roof is important. Uh, what's the condition of the property? Uh, everything probably has to be refreshed from sure. doorknobs to it really depends on the age of the property. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always heard, you know, that's a common thing is to is to uh, add some some value to apartments. You know, a lot of multifamily apartment buildings are acquired with that strategy that, you know, they're undervalued, they're mom and pop situations and and you can make a couple changes to increase the rents or whatever. But what you're talking about is pretty significant, especially with the type of returns you're talking about. Sure. So uh, we do invest into value-add multifamily. So what you're, what you're referring to is projects where there is a aged property, mismanaged, um, and it needs um, curb appeal improvement. Obviously, many major systems roofs, HVAC, and so, and so on. We invest in those two. We understand that business actually pretty well. Mm -hmm. So uh, the strategy is is similar, except for instead of picking up an existing property with a bunch of tenants in place, and quite often rents below the market, the that value is slower. So you take a multifamily where you have to renovate, and then over time, increase rents. It takes a couple of years to go through the process, sometimes even longer, because how much, how many units can you do at a time when you have, you know, reasonable occupancy? Mm -hmm. This works a little differently. From the point of view, you have a hotel. Depending on the hotel, sometimes you can stop the operation entirely and just work through it quickly. Sometimes there are a few buildings, and you just turn off one building and you go through that, and you turn off the other building, and go through that, and you're quickly converting them to uh, the hotel. So the 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 conversion and the lease up time is a lot faster on a hotel to multifamily conversion versus incremental renovations on a traditional value-add multifamily project. Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, before we go any further, I wanted to remind everybody of your podcast again, go to, it's a big Mike fund. So take a look at that. Um, also go to bigmikefund.com and I'll make sure to include those links in the show notes. I understand that you, uh, you. I think you also have a YouTube channel, don't you? Yeah, we do. Uh, we do have a channel. Uh, some of the podcasts are there. Some of the educational content. Um, you know, this is something that I, I have a passion for. In heart, I'm an educator. Years ago, when I went to college, I'm actually a mathematician by education, but I almost went to get a master's degree in education. So I love a little bit of that uh, education and giving back to the uh, community. So I try to educate and. YouTube channel does have a little bit of that. Um, 
uh, there are a number of educational videos that I put out. I one of the I don't want to call it patented uh, concepts, but it's a it's a concept that I've pioneered. Again, the the concept itself is not new, but uh, I, I've developed a methodology how to look at commercial deals uh, in 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 terms of investment quadrants. So the concept is fairly simple. Uh, like Robert Kiyosaki has quadrants. I have my sure. own quadrants. A little different here. Um, I have a quadrant one, two, three, four, and a quadrant one is essentially, in, uh, if you imagine the grid, one, two, three, four, and they're going mm -hmm. from left top corner to the right, and then one down to the left, and then one to the right. So quadrant one is a top left quadrant. It's an investment grade quadrant, and it's a cash flow quadrant. And quadrant two, investment grade, and growth quadrant. And quadrant three is the speculative grade, more aggressive, uh, taking a higher level mm -hmm. of risk, but cash flow focus in quadrant four is uh, basically speculative growth quadrants. So it's, this methodology helps myself and helps investors look at any commercial deal and just think, where does it fall? Am I taking the right level of risk reward? So mm -hmm. I do a little bit of that, helping folks understand um, kind of how do you look at the investments opportunities because the world is white and there are a lot of bright and shiny objects and you can get into the wrong investment not really understanding the risk without a little bit of that framework as an educational methodology sure well let's let's jump into some of those risks and you know if people uh, are interested in passively investing and looking at fund options what are some of the questions they should be asking to make sure that that fund is a good fit Sure. So the easiest references actually go on our website. There is an FAQ. We, we have an FAQ document on our website uh, that actually compares uh, with a bunch of these questions. Um, and it asks, uh, we answer these questions for our family of funds, for tempo opportunity and tempo growth. But some of the questions could be really, really basic. What is the fund strategy? It's one of the most basic questions. That was really interesting. I have a book out also called How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Investment Fund. It's available on Amazon. If you search by Mike Zlotnick, you can get the book. And the book asks 10 questions. It's the top 10 questions one should ask before investing in a fund. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you these questions. What is the security of, an, of, of your investment? Probably the number one question, you know, how safe is it, in other words? And the moment you hear guaranteed, safe, watch out. What is Bernie made of? promise everybody. Guaranteed safe investment. So most of the private funds are not guaranteed, nor they are 100% safe. There's some level of risk, and you should understand that this is not U.S. treasuries. The only things that are sort of guaranteed by, by the U.S. government are U.S. treasuries. Everything else has some degree of risk. So the question number one is how secure your investment. And understanding um, a given fund uh, and the strategy helps uh, identify that. Number two question is, uh, what is the return on your investment? What kind of rate of return you are projected to generate? Number three, how is the fund, uh, what kind of income it generates and how is it taxed? Very important. Does it generate short-term income subject to higher rates or does it generate long-term capital gains? What is the fund uh, liquidity? Some funds are highly liquid and some completely illiquid. So understanding what you're investing into is critical because you can make the investment and your money is uh, committed to for five years. If you mm -hmm. want out, there is no way out. So liquidity is important. Next is what are the fund fees? So as, as the investor, you want to see alignment of interest between a fund manager and you as an investor. So if the manager makes a lot of fees, especially fees up front, and less as you go and less on the back end performance, there's misalignment of interest. You want to see the reverse. 
where the manager is compensated when the fund performs. Um, payout frequency, quarterly, annually, monthly. Um, what is the management team experience? Um, quality of deal flow. What kind of deals they invest in? Where they come from? Mm -hmm. uh, is this an open-ended fund or a closed-ended fund? Very fundamental question. So open-ended funds typically are evergreen funds. They continue to operate on periodic basis, whether it's monthly or quarterly, new subscriptions, uh, people exiting redemption, selling their units, they distribute income uh, periodic basis versus closed-ended funds. They raise capital for some amount of time, put the money to work, and there is no redemption. They have to live through a life cycle. If they invested in a bunch of hotel to multifamily conversions, you have to wait for those to complete and to sell. So again, open-ended versus closed-ended. And then again, fund investment strategies uh, is another uh, important question. What does the fund invest in? What are the risks? Because um, the fund is a combination of multiple investments. So understanding the risks associated with a strategy is what creates overall risk profile on a given fund. I hope it's sure. not too much. <laughs> no, <laughs> those are those are great. And, and I hope people... Uh, pause and jotted those down because I, I think those are like vital when it comes to comes to this type of thing. Um, and uh, it's, it's always amazing. You know, I, I, we could go down the rabbit hole on this because I always find it interesting because, you know, as a fund manager, you have the acquisition side and then you probably go through a project management side, but in the end, do you also um, manage the property when it's complete, when it's been converted or so we, we have a unique feature where uh, we are, there's a term for it. We, we call it fund of funds. There's no better way to put it. We don't operate a lot of these assets directly. We invest with operators and operators run these properties. So from time to time, we'll wind up with direct ownership, but quite often we will take a piece or, um, or a whole you know, the whole deal, but there is an operator who is going to uh, execute the strategy. Sometimes it's a partnership with operator. I'll give you an example. So we have a partnership we invested in um, with a uh, uh, one of the uh, operators. He is one of the mastermind. He's a member of one of the masterminds they go to. Mastermind called is Collective Genius. So it's a mastermind and movers and shakers, uh, sharp guys. Mm -hmm. And he's in Mobile, Alabama. And I wouldn't normally invest in Mobile about, but because he's there, he's got the property management, he's got the know-how and operation, he was looking to buy a portfolio of 93 single-family residential properties, and we financed most of the equity on the deal. So we're not a direct operator, but we are partnering the deal. So we do this from time to time, uh, investing into a given uh, area and the given strategy if we have the strong feet on the ground in the form of a trusted third-party operator. That's what we do. That's the way to think about it. As a fund manager, the primary job is to identify, we always start with people. Who do we want to invest with and what projects we want to invest with? So this is how we do it. Without a good starting person, we don't just go into a given area, even if it's a great project, because success of the project is really predicated on ability to execute the strategy. So sure. it's not just, hey, let's get a good deal. <laughs> let's get a good deal and make sure that the, the, the value strategy, the conversion, the, the lease up can be executed. And if, if it doesn't exist, then it's not a good investment. Mm -hmm. So you rely on some people feet on the ground to, to source these opportunities and, and you help with the funding aspect. That's exactly correct. So we, sure. we, we spend years building these relationships, what I call them sponsors, operators, movers and shakers in their own markets. And a lot of the deals, the way they get done, 
they reach out to us and say, Mike, I know you got the money, you got the capital, here's the deal. Can we work together to get it funded? Sometimes uh, it's just a partnership. Sometimes it's a big deal. We've invested if taken chunks of much larger deals. Give you an example, we have an investment from Tempo Growth Fund into a very large uh, value-add multifamily project in Indianapolis, almost a thousand doors. And the project was so large, we couldn't take the entire equity, so we took only a piece of the equity, about a third of the project. So we do that from time to time to basically, first of all, we need to diversify. One of the most important jobs of a fund manager is to diversify across many investments to spread the risk. So one of the biggest benefits of the fund is diversification. But we will identify these very high competent uh, high competence operators, people who we know, like, and trust, and then we we'll, we'll write a check into the a given project uh, if the uh, project makes great economic sense. Sure. So if somebody had a project, like what what type of information do you typically request? Like if it was a perfect packet of information, what what would that look like? Great question, Jack. It depends. So. Uh, we always start with with the, as I said, sponsor and operator. Let's just say we already have the existing relationship. If it's a cold lead, we don't know who they are. They can bring us the most exciting deal. We won't even look at it. I call it bright and shiny objects. I just don't know them. I, I can't underwrite mm-hmm. the deal until I, I have a strong point of reference. Either we work with them in the past, or there's a strong referral. That's part of a critical part of underwriting. We won't take on cold business from the street. The second element of it is what is the deal? Let's just understand because it differs. Is it a value add multifamily? Is it a conversion of a hotel to multifamily? Is this a self storage value add play? Is it an industrial property? So that really varies by the type of assets and the type of strategy. What we're looking for, essential as much as possible, defensive characteristics of the investments. So, what are the risks? What can go wrong? And what is the upside? And what is the execution strategy uh, to do this? So I call them, you know, the, in my terminology and methodology are the light value add or heavy value adds. And if there's a light value add, the risk is lower. There may be a cash flow as you go, and it's an incremental risk. The upside is generally a little bit lighter because you're taking less risk. If it's a heavy value add, like, like a repositioning of an office to, to multifamily or, or conversion of an old retail to a self-storage or um, something... Uh, what what I call, um, you lose the cash flow, you change the property, you develop or redevelop. It's speculative in nature. It's a quadrant four deal, in my, my methodology. Mm-hmm. These type of projects need very, very competent execution. Uh, who is a sponsor? How many of these have they done? Why is this one a good deal? And let's look through the numbers. How is it budgeted? How is it underwritten? Um, what's the acquisition price? So I'll give you an example. Some of these hotel conversions, so we did a project uh, in Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina, conversion of residents into uh, affordable uh, multifamily housing. So long story short, all in, conservative budget, six million bucks. And we look at it, we looked at the numbers and the numbers look conservative. It's 88 doors, almost 50,000 square feet. So price per door was good, total budget was good. What can we sell it for? And we look at this thing conservatively and based on its projected income, it should easily sell at least 8 million bucks, but it's got an upside for nine or 10. So if you go through the project and you look in a very conservative scenario, you can still make the numbers work well, then you have limited downside and 
pretty good upside. In the execution itself, what are the risks? And if the risks are well understood and the competent operator, the project begins to shine. It's like you start adding the, these pieces together and everything seems to click. There's still risks. There's still construction risk. There's still, you know, the permits could get delayed. Uh, cost of materials and labor can go up. But overall, if the thesis is strong in the conservative use case scenario, then you can deal with the cost overruns in a little longer time. Uh, and that's how we look at these projects. Sure, sure. Well, I, I uh, can't believe we've we've already talked a half an hour here. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we, we could go even in more detail. Um, but again, I wanted to remind everybody, head over to bigmikefund.com. And I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. Look for the podcast, Big Mike Fund. Uh, but uh, we'll end. We'll end with this: is that I always know that there's a question you wished I would have asked. Which, what question is that? And and then we'll uh, let you finish out the show. So, um, the, the most difficult question to every fund manager, and I'll give you sort of it's it's, it's tell me about the, the big loser project. It's the most painful question. That's the, the question to it, to always to ask: Have you experienced a loss, and what kind of loss it is, and what did you learn from it? That you mm-hmm. people learn a lot more from their mistakes or from difficult projects than they learn from successes. So, if 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 a successful, if any project manager, if you ask them the question, they can't tell you about a bad project or a bad situation. Something's wrong. No, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, I especially like that uh, you frame it uh, regarding what what lessons were learned in order to prevent that from happening again. Yeah, you get PhD from from a challenging project. You spend so much time and energy, and I, I hate to put it this way, you do wind up spending a lot more time on a challenging situation solving problem than on a success story. Success story is easy to talk about, everything went right, but you sure. learn the lessons for sure from difficult or fa- situations of failures. Well, I, I really appreciate your time, Big Mike. I hope we can chat again sometime. Thanks for coming. Jack, thank you kindly. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be on your show. Would love to have you back on my show, Big Mike Fund Podcast, and hope we, we talk, talk again very soon. This has been the REI Mastermind Network. You can already tell that we've made some changes and a few more are on the way. If you are interested in what we have planned, head over to patreon.com slash REI Mastermind and support the show today. Financial contributions are always appreciated, along with a like, share, and review. It really helps us grow and reach more people with this valuable information. See you next time, and tell a friend.